All right, if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, we're in a series called The Kingdom Come, and we, the reality in the Gospel of Matthew we find in the New Testament is that uh, when Jesus steps foot on earth, he comes to establish his kingdom. But yes, yeah, so he comes to establish his kingdom, and the reality with the kingdom of God is it's here, but it's not yet. It's kind of, it's kind of a dual truth here, that the kingdom of God has come, but it's not fully manifested Yet, And so we are in this kind of in-between stage where God has manifested his kingdom, but it's manifested in the hearts and lives of those who have surrendered to the king. That doesn't mean that Jesus does not have authority over the whole world. He does have authority over his creation, over the universe for that matter. He maintains it, but he has not uh, fully uh, manifested his power and his might throughout all of creation. He hasn't done that yet. He will one day. And so we're in this time where the kingdom has come, but it hasn't been fully manifested. And so what, does, what should our lives look like as the people of God? How do we live and what should our lives look like if the kingdom has come in our lives? What's it supposed to be like? And so in Matthew chapter 19, we have some good insight in this. And there's a little, it almost seems like a disconnected little couple of verses, but it's all flows together where Jesus makes a reference um, that is similar to, to what he's talked about in Matthew chapter 18. He is um, asks some questions about children and their place, and, um, and he makes an ant, you know response to that in chapter 18, and he's going to reiterate that again. And it kind of flows in the same thought progression as the whole of the kingdom. And, and, and the bottom line is that things aren't as we see them in this world. Our world has uh, elevated that which should be brought down and has brought down that which should be elevated. And the way that we see leadership and the way, the way that we see authority and the way that we see power is not as God has established it. And so as the kingdom is manifest, it's going to look a lot different than the way the world does things. And that's what's awesome and amazing. The world would never, if they were coming up with a story of rescue, they would do it through armies and, and through war and through whatever, power, they wouldn't send a baby to come and live in a manger to be the rescue plan for the, all of creation. That just doesn't make sense. But that's the way God does things. He does things um, outside of our little boxes and shows his power in ways that we just could not comprehend. And so follow with me in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. It says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. And this isn't the major point of the message, but it is here. And we like to, uh, across life, we like to work through books um, chronologically and deal with whatever's in the text. And so um, first thought here is uh, that we need to have a childish faith. That's kind of peculiar. Why we want to have a childish faith? Why we want to be less mature? Well, it's not that we would be less mature. That's not what we mean by childishness. But the fact that, that when you look at kids, okay, if we're going to war, are we going to put kids in the battle? No, we, you're not going to put kids in war, okay? Um, if we are making major um, political or um, personal or you know, legal business community decisions do we look to kids to consult them hey kids would you no they don't have enough life experience they don't have enough wisdom they don't have it we would not look to them for those things kids are inherently dependent upon their parents 
I mean, the IRS is messed up as the IRS is. One thing it did get right is that kids are dependent, okay? I've got a whole bunch of them um, on my uh, tax form of dependents, okay? I've got five of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, they are dependent. They need their parents. They need their parents' instruction, their parents' encouragement. Their parents. They have to look to their parents for everything. And that is the way Jesus wants us to look to him and look to the Father as dependents, looking to him to supply all, all of our needs with faith, knowing that our Father will take care of us. Our Father's going to lead us. Our Father's going to provide for us. Our Father is going to take care of every need we have. We need to have a childish faith, humble ourselves. I think he's specifically, he is, yes, talking about children, but I think he's also talking about his disciples in general, that we should come to him as children with childlike faith. You know, the, the, the longer we live in life, the more we start to pile on layers of cynicism and liar, uh, layers of criticism, and, and we just become jaded because of life. And we lose the innocence of a child that just believes, I, I know my mom, my dad, they will take care of me. They can conquer this. They can, whatever, they'll provide whatever. They can take care of us because they're superheroes. <laughs> that's the way kids look at their parents. And that's the way God wants us to look at him. And so the children come, and they, uh, the disciples are saying, hey, you know, we're a little busy. We've uh, we got a lot of stuff going on today. We really don't have time for the kids today, okay? And so they're kind of pushing the people away. Hey, get rid of the kids. Let the, and Jesus cuts them off and says, look, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I think he's trying to tell the disciples, hey, you guys might learn something if you kind of hang around with these kids a little bit more. So when the service is over, there's a sign-up list in the lobby to work with children, okay? And um, I don't know what God's going to say to you this morning, but one thing is that you need to work with uh, kids in the uh, kids' area. So why don't we just go right now? Let's all follow me. I'm just kidding. Now, we are blessed to have a great uh, group of folks, uh, many that don't even have kids yet, that work with and minister to and love on our children, and we're so thankful for that. Um, but Jesus lays his hands on them. as a, I believe symbolically laying your hands on people is showing the presence of God um, being on them. It's kind of an anointing or an encouragement that God's hand, let the, it's a blessing that God's hand would be on them. And parents, let me encourage you that sometimes you need to take your kids and you need to put your hands on them, not around their necks, but I mean like on their shoulders, on their heads, whatever. And, and you need to bless them. Bless them. Just pray a prayer of blessing regularly over your kids. It's been a while since I've done it with my kids, but, but um, learning from others who are wiser and a little further down the road, you know, sometimes just for us, we just line them all up and, and we'll just pray over them and, and pray a prayer of blessing on each of them for them to hear you going to the throne boldly on their behalf to pray for them. What an awesome way to impart um, the, the presence of God and the reality of God into their lives. Not, not, yeah, we did the church thing this Sunday morning and we checked the box and we went home and we did whatever else through us. No, turn off the World Cup, turn off the whatever it is and, and pause for a second and bless your kids. Bless your kids as Jesus gave an example. And that's totally free. That's not even the message today. But if we move on to verse 16, he says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, What do you ask? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life... If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you want to enter life, you've got to keep the commandments. And he said to him, well, which ones? Which, which ones are you talking about? Which commandments? As if not all of them. But Jesus says to him, well, you should not murder, should not commit adultery, 
should not steal, and you should uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He throws a few of them out there. The young man says, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, well, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In this passage, uh, we have this man that we know through, uh, if you have any kind of knowledge of the New Testament, you've heard of this guy before, and he's the rich young ruler. Here's some descriptions of him, of the man. He is a young man, verse 22 says, says that, he's a young man, which, which means he would be probably between the ages of 20 to 40, which would mean I am still a young man, being that I have just turned 40. And uh, Dave Fields, actually, uh, he is also a young man. So we're young men. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but we're, I'm still a young man. So um, I just want to just declare that for you guys. He's a young man. He's a young man. So that, it's, again, 20s, 40s. Uh, number two, we find out that he's a wealthy man. It says that he had great possessions. He had great possessions. He had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of wealth. And then thirdly, we, we understand in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, Um, It's kind of the parallel version of this. And it says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's called a ruler, which would mean he probably was a leader in the local synagogue. So he was a church leader, elder, whatever you want to call him. He was a leader in the church, in the the synagogue, local expression of of the centralized temple and all that stuff. In communities, they would scatter and they would worship God in their synagogues. And then they would come back to Jerusalem for feasts in different times. And so this guy was a, was, was a, pretty high up in the synagogue. He was a ruler, he was wealthy, and he was young. And he comes to Jesus with this question, the question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, for many of us, I mean, we've heard this story before, and you, we kind of know, you know, oh, you can't work your way to heaven. I mean, we, we say that, but the reality is if, if we were to spread out from here and we were to go to interview every one of us, the, the first 10 people that we came across in the community, okay, in the Bible Belt, in Washington County, in the, in the East Tennessee region. If we were to go spread out, we were to find first 10 people everybody got to, and we were to interview them, and we were to say, okay, are you, do you believe in heaven, hell? And they say, yeah, I believe in heaven. How, how does a person get there? Do you know if you're going to get there, and what do you base that on? Undoubtedly, 85, if not more, percent of them would say, well, I mean, I, I try to do what God tells me to do. I mean, I'm trying to do the right thing. I try to be a good person. I'm trying to, and they would give us this list of deeds. They would give us a list of deeds. Many of us in this room, we might answer that question the same Well, I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. I mean, trying to obey. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying, I am blah, 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 right? But is that really, is that really the answer? And for that matter, should we fault him for that? Because if you look at the Old Testament, look at Micah 6, 8. Um, Micah 6, let's flip there real quick. Old Testament, Minor Prophets. If you found Matthew, make a hard left. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? So so that's a great question. What does the Lord require of you? I mean, what good deeds must you do to inherit eternal life? And here's what he says. He says, do justice, to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There's a list. It's a list. Do justice. You need to uh, love kindness. You need to walk humbly with your God. 
Three things. If you look back to the end of Deuteronomy, after the second giving of the law, before the children of God inherited the promised land, right before they crossed the Jordan, went into the promised land, um, Moses kind of reiterates the law, gives them the Ten Commandments again, goes over the law again. And then he says to them, look, guys, I've set before you life and death. Okay, choose life that you might live. If you do these things and you obey the commandments of God, you will have life. And if you don't do these things, you will lose the inheritance that I'm about to get you, give you. You're going to lose it if you don't do the things I've commanded you to do. So he kind of puts the law out there and gives them this criteria. And so honestly, the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking a question that would be the common question of the Jewish people of that day. What do I have to do to get eternal life? What, what, what needs to happen for me to get eternal life? The question. And, and, and so um, they kind of the, it's an elementary picture of God's love. You think about it as parents. As parents. I mean, when your kids are young, you start with just the basic rules. And that's what we have in the Old Testament. The law is given to, to distinguish right from wrong and to teach his people the right way to live, knowing that they would never be able to accomplish it on their own power by their own devices. At some point, they're going to have to, um, they're going to come to the realization as the, the, the law is the schoolmaster or the tutor, or better yet, the school bus that will carry them to the only one who can fulfill the law and can empower them to live a life that they cannot live on their own, which is namely Jesus. And so that's kind of what's set up here. And we're in the midst of this tension where this, people haven't clearly understood this yet. So what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And then he gives them the answer. Why do you ask what is Good. Why do you ask this question? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life or have eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said, to him, well, which ones am I supposed to keep? Which ones am I supposed to keep? And he said to him, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall um, love your neighbor as yourself. What he does is he takes the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments were divided up. There are ten of them. The first four related to us and God. They were kind of our, our vertical. I'm going to turn the air off so you guys don't totally freeze on me. They related to our uh, relationship with, with the Father. They're vertical. Um, and, and then the next six deal with our relationship with one another. And so if you, if to, to go over the Ten Commandments to remind you, if you haven't read those in a while, the, the first one, no other gods. They have no other gods before me. Second one is, is don't have any idols. Don't create graven images don't create me in an image that i other than what i've already revealed myself to be in the word of god don't fashion me into something that you make up in your head some other view of me um that's not in the word of god don't don't create uh, an idol and don't mess with who i am and change me into some other form and make me your little puppet god don't do that that's the second one number three don't use the lord's name in vain don't use hey we call the name of the lord because we need salvation, not because we hit our thumb with a hammer, okay? We, we, it's a declaration. In fact, for the Jewish people, they were so reverent about this that they felt like if they, if they call out the name of the Lord, they're, they're, having, they're calling the attention of Almighty God upon their life. And if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, the last thing they want is God looking at them more. And the reality is God sees us, you know, he's always watching us. He always knows what's going on in our life. He's constantly concerned for his children, for his people. God is everywhere. He knows what's going on all the time. But nonetheless, there was a reverence there that I don't want to get the attention of God heightened upon my life unless I need him. And that would be a point of 
salvation. I need him to save me. I'm dying and I need his help right now. Then they would say the name of the Lord. And so they, would, they took the syllables out of the name of God and they would just refer to the divine name, which we would say Jehovah Yahweh, probably something like Yahweh. They would just say the Lord, the Lord. And so in your Old Testament uh, Bibles, you're going to see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And whenever you see Lord, capital O-R-D, that is a reference to the divine name, the personal name of God, which they refused to speak except in point where they were in desperate need of God's intervention. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath. And then number five, which is one of the ones that he mentions here, this is one of the horizontal ones. Honor your mom and dad. Uh, don't murder. Number six. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. And then don't bear false witness. And he leaves out, don't covet. So he mentions Several of them leaves out one, and then he he leaves out the, the vertical ones relating to God. And so the man says this, the, the, the rich young ruler, here's his response. Which ones? Jesus lists them, and he says, young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? All these have I, I've kept. What do I still lack? And I'll be honest with you, I've read this a bunch of times, and typically I always saw the rich young ruler as kind of arrogant. I mean, he's kind of like, sweet i've done the i've got those that's good it's like it's like he's getting a pop quiz you've been there in school you know where you got you don't know what the questions are going to be and they start asking the questions and you're you're kind of nervous and they ask him and you're like oh that's the that's the five of the ten that i actually studied and i know them okay that's good i got that and so i you, you kind of feel this tension like he's like he's fired up you know like i got those and that's it but i don't think that's what he's doing i don't think and we don't ultimately know but i i, I kind of think that there's another question going on and we see it in the last part of his response all these i've kept what do i still lack i don't care how good you think you are there is still this inherent sense that it's not good enough it's not good enough there's something else i've got to do there's something else i feel like what if i've missed it what if i've done a hundred things and there's a hundred and first thing I forgot and that's going to condemn me to hell. What's the extra thing? What's the other thing? Is there anything possibly that I'm missing? Is there any little footnote? Is there any little subscript? Is there any other little thing that I might be missing that's out there? That's the thing about legalism. It's a sense of I, I, when we put these laws down, if I do these things, then I will be righteous. There's always a sense that Maybe I'm not doing them enough. Maybe I've messed up on them. You, w- w- the more legalistic we get, the more that we misunderstand the purpose of the law and we start trying to obey these things and do all these things out of our own self-righteousness, out of our own um, efforts, our external behavior. We try to change our external behavior and it's not an inside-out thing with God's Spirit working in and through us. There's always this sense of, is God really happy with me? I mean, has He really forgiven me? I mean, is he really at peace with me? Is he really, you understand? The heart of the rich young ruler? I've done these things, but what else? Is there anything else I might have forgotten? I think he still has this gnawing sense of, I've done this stuff, but I'm still, I'm still lacking. What's the problem? In Philippians chapter 3, uh, let's flip there. We hear Paul's version of his self-righteousness and Paul's testimony. He gives us a really awesome testimony in Philippians if you Hit Matthew, go right. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. In verse 4, here's Paul's version of his self-righteousness. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. In other words, I, you know, 
the, he's, he's condemning some people who have put a bunch, a bunch of emphasis on external righteousness. And they've done, they've checked some boxes and they're kind of glorying. And I've checked the box and I've done these things and you should do these things too. And so he says, look, if, if anybody should brag on these things, I, I should be the one bragging on these things. He says, um, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. He, like the rich young ruler, I did that stuff. I checked those boxes. I did those things. And he says, but, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of Faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. I've done all these things, but I count them to be uh, lost, rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness and glory of knowing Christ and having his righteousness that he has gifted to me, a foreign righteousness that I have not derived on my own, but it's been gifted to me. And because of that, I, I glory. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this statement. Just We're on chapter 19. You go back, um, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this shocking statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not have eternal life. Unless you are better than the best, you're not getting in to the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. Incidentally, the best aren't getting in the kingdom either. <laughs> Their best isn't good enough. And so clearly, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. So the great question, what, what am I still lacking? What am I missing? Here's the reality. Here's the reality. The answer is in three things. And this is interesting. This passage actually um, is, is, is really important in the life of cross life because there's kind of three words, three phrases that have, that have um, largely defined us. In fact, if you go to the What We Value page on our website, which the missional Church is one of those things. Um, we kind of have them outlined in three sections, and they break down with, with these three phrases, and these three phrases are born in this passage. They come from this passage of Scripture. And the first one is God over self. God over the self. If you, if you want to understand about the kingdom come, if you want to understand about how to answer the question of what do I need to do to have eternal life, it begins with this, God over self. Stop trying to get self-righteousness. Stop trying to redeem yourself. Stop trying to exalt yourself. The, the beginning is laying your life down so that you might live. In fact, that's the purpose of our name, Cross Life Church. Through being crucified with Christ, we might live. Okay, By laying our lives down, we can have eternal life. And so God over self is that first thought. In fact, it's interesting. He says, um, even in the beginning of this, verse 17, what, what do you ask? Why do you ask? Jesus says, what is good? There is only one who is good, God. It's a reference to God. He's saying, hey, only God is good. He's just trying to help him see, okay, you're asking me a question, but you don't even realize what you're really asking. 
And you don't realize the question you should be asking. There's only one who's good. And so your, in fact, that's what righteousness means. Righteousness is God's goodness. And the reality is there's nobody in this room that has that by ourselves. We do not have God's goodness. You don't have God's goodness. You can't get God's goodness by your own efforts. You can't do it. There's no list that you can obey to get God's goodness. It is foreign to us, and it has to be gifted to us. And it begins with us laying down our lives, being like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We realize, man, I, I've got nothing to impress God with. And we lay our lives down, and we, we reach in our pockets, and we, we pull out the little bit of lint that we have, and we dump it on the ground. We say, that's all I, that's all I got. That's the point of being poor in spirit. We go, I don't have any righteousness that's derived by my own efforts. Jesus says, great. Now I can give you the kingdom of God. But if you can't even be going, hey, what else do I got to do? I can't help you. But if you'd humble yourself, you lay yourself down, God over self, that's the beginning of salvation. We come to the point of, I am poor in spirit. I have no hope apart from God. And so there's this instinctive sense in us of, well, what am I missing? And the reality is, is, is humbling ourselves. God over self is the key. The second thing he gets into is verse 21. It says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor so that you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He tells this man, sell everything. It's a confusing passage. Why, why is he telling him to do this? this the second point of, of what it means to have eternal life, God over self, secondly, is the people over things. People are more important than stuff. People are more important than stuff. Now, don't confuse this with a little phrase I like to call narcissistropy. There's a guy who wrote a book called The Experience Economy, and I heard him speaking about that book, and he, he coined this phrase I think is brilliant. He took philanthropy, which is the giving benevolent kindness, giving you know, money and stuff and building buildings for people and, and helping folks, okay? Um, philanthropy and narcissism, Okay, which, hello, nar- narcissism, you say, well, what is that? It's the selfie generation is narcissism. People that run around taking pictures of themselves constantly so everybody could see their face from different angles and how long their arm is to be able to take that face. That's, narciss- that's, that's um, narcissism. And if you take narcissism and philanthropy and you put them together, you have narcissistropy. I do good things for other people so that I feel good about myself. Okay, you know, the, the greatest example of a narcissistropy person is Oprah Winfrey, okay? And, you know, Oprah Winfrey has done some amazing things. I think it's spectacular that she built an orphanage in, you know, southern Africa to be able to help. I think it's great that she did that. But why did she do it? Why did she do it? Did she do it for God? Did she do it for Jesus? Did she do it for his glory? Did she do it for herself? I think she did it for narzothropy. That's why she did it. And a lot of people and a lot of professing Christians live their lives trying to redeem themselves by narzothropic means. They do a whole bunch of stuff thinking that if I just do enough stuff, God will be pleased with me. If I serve God, if I go in the ministry, if I go in the mission field, if I go on a mission trip, if I give more, if I serve more, if I do this, if I do that, then God will be pleased with me. People, God over self and the people over things. People over things. The Bible's not advocating narsothropy. Giving all without following Jesus amounts, does not amount to salvation. The person... Listen, the person who is relieved that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions and give to the poor, that's the exact person that Jesus is talking to. So if you're going, man, I'm so, so, so glad God didn't tell me to give everything and, and then give it to the poor, sell everything and give it to the poor, then he's probably talking to you. Yeah, the, the reality is uh, it's never hard to give away what isn't yours. 
never hard to give away that which isn't yours. When you realize we have a whole bunch of stuff that God has blessed us with, but not one bit of it, whether my name is on it or not, belongs to me. It's all been entrusted to me, and I am a steward of these things and this money and this wealth. So I think it's a beautiful thing that Oaks Fellowship, you guys are a great illustration of that, that God has entrusted you with so many, just some physical, tangible resources that without batting an eye, you guys are like, hey, if that could be used for the kingdom of God, that is awesome. That's great. Let, no problem. It's, it's easy to give away that which isn't really ours, right? When, when it's, it's not really my stuff, it's God's stuff. And if it could be used, if God wants to use it some other way to advance his kingdom, praise Jesus. That's awesome. It's all going to decompose one day. It's not stored up and put in a warehouse. I mean, let's, let's use it for his glory. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. But that's true in all of our lives. So what, what do you have? I, I remember uh, taking a girl on a mission trip um, that took a team, and there was one girl that um, somebody had stole. This is in Zambia, Africa, and somebody had reached in her backpack and stole like 100 bucks from her, okay? And this girl was really upset about it. And so she kept making a big deal, and I had already had enough of her because as soon as we got on the plane, she was like, my daddy this, my daddy that, my boyfriend this, my boyfriend that, the whole way over there. And it was a long flight. Oh, she's killing me. And I was like, I was looking at the emergency exit. And then I looked back at her. And I looked back at the emergency exit. And I came the closest I've ever come to pulling that lever, okay? And landed somewhere over Greenland. But I didn't, I didn't do it. But, but, you know, so she had, it, wow, it had been a long trip already. And, uh, and so she had her... St- hundred bucks stolen. She was really upset about it. She felt so violated. And I, I understand. I get that. But we made it clear to her, look, look, we can replace the hundred. We'll get you hundred bucks. Not a problem. Um, we'll get the two. And she's like, I just, it's just wrong. I just think it's wrong. And she just, she wanted, frankly, she wanted justice. And, and I finally had enough. And I was like, look, we'll give you the money back. We, we, we have the money. I've got some emergency money just for that reason. You can go buy your gifts and your wooden carvings and your whatever and make yourself happy and you can get a phone call to call your daddy and your boyfriend and whatever else and and you know just stand down and she just kept pushing and pushing. So finally said you know that wasn't even your money it was god's money and she said oh no 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 i tithe i mean i gave god his 10 percent and that other 90 percent that was my money and i was like whoa sister you have your economy is broken it's all God's. I mean, whose breath were you borrowing when you earned that money? And for that matter, your daddy probably gave you all that money anyways, okay? And, you know, she was totally mixed up on her economy. And I think all of us often find that way. In fact, you know that the poorest person in our country is in the top 10% of, well, of world wealth economically in the world? I mean, we look at people that, you know, I don't got a car, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have that, but you got, they got a TV and cable and an uh, Obama phone and all these different things. They got all this stuff, and yet they'll, they'll say, you know, I don't, really, I don't really have anything. And there's people all over the world that man, they, don't have, they don't have half that stuff. They literally do not know where the next meal is going to come from. I remember being in Uganda, Africa, in a village called Soweto, that was the most impoverished place in the, in the city of Kampala and seeing children walking around where they don't they can't afford diapers. They can't afford to wash the cloth diapers. I mean, they're just wearing, you know, shredded clothes, running through streets full of feces and other things. It would, the stench of the place was horrific. And yeah, that was just, that's life for them. We had to prepare our students as they went into that environment. They, you have never seen poverty on this level before. 
And yet here we stand in America and, you know, we have to have multiple houses and we have to get new houses with more storage, with more spaces, with more this, more that, to, to hoard all of our stuff. But in reality, what, what do we need? It's all going to burn. Why don't we sell it all and give to the poor? Why don't we live a life and, and shift our kind of, why don't we live on less so that others can have more? And I'm not saying that it's, it is evil and wrong for you to be wealthy and to have a lot of money. That is not the point. God blesses people in a way, and some people just have a gift to, to, to um, earn income and to make money, and that's fine. This is not a legalistic thing that, you know, if you're making a, above a certain place, you're evil and you're wrong. That's not true. Nor do I say, let me just a quick eight-second, you know, tangent soapbox. It is not the government's place to steal money from people to give to other people. That is wrong. That's wrong. That is not the book of Acts. That is not the early church. But people motivated by the gospel serve those in need. Motivated by the gospel, not coerced by gun. They're freely able to invest in that which is eternal. Okay? That's what we find in the word of God. And that's what... Jesus is challenging this guy. People over things. If Jesus is not Lord of all, your stuff, your life, then he's not Lord at all in your life. If Jesus isn't Lord of all the stuff in your life, then he's not Lord at all. Jesus said, if you be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard these things, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was grieved because he thought, man, this is a, that's a tall order. And those possessions really arguably had a great hold upon his heart. Now, we don't know the rest of the story. Did he go and he sell? Did he come back and say, Jesus, okay, I thought it over overnight. I, I would like to think that that's what happened in the end of the story. But we don't know ultimately how that played out. But it stands in the word of God as a great warning to us. The last point, which we'll talk about really next week, but I'll just highlight it for you. God over self, people over things, and eternity over time. The rest of the passage, we'll get into that, and we'll kind of unpack that idea of eternity over time. We're not going to go there today, but as we wrap it up, I just want to remind you, at Cross Life Church, what we define a disciple as in discipleship, which is really, we want to be a church that makes disciples. That's our heartbeat. And so we want to be a church that makes disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, who's being changed by Jesus, and who is on mission with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So a disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, I will make you being changed by Jesus and then on mission with Jesus, fishers of men. Before we can be a fisher of men and before we follow Jesus, we have to lay down our nets. We have to let go of the stuff because you can't take the stuff and follow Jesus. It's just not going to work like that. Okay, you have to let the stuff go. The reality is that when we elevate stuff to the same level as Jesus, you know, our economy, again, is broken. I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to go to um, Colonial Williamsburg, and, and we're touring all these old shops and places in the street, and it was super cool to be reminded of, of the American Revolution and the history of our country and how our nation was founded, and it was really a pretty cool thing. But one of the things we did is we went to the silversmith's shop, and in there, they showed us the scales and all these different things. And what would happen back in that day, uh, they would take some silver, and you take, say you have a silver spoon that's kind of, kind of messed up, or you want to change it to something else, or you have some silver in different forms, and you could bring it in, and what the, what the silversmith would do is he would put it on one side of the scale, and then he would take defined weights and put them on the other side of the scale, and when the weights equaled the, the weight of the, of the silver that you brought in, he would go to his book, and he would write down the amount, and, and that would be the way that he would know what you have entrusted him with, and then he would deduct a percentage of that. It would be the cost that, that he would recoup to pay for his services. 
and then he would make whatever it is you need him to make, more spoons, forks, whatever it is. And, and, and that's how things went. Now, the reality is when we say, you know what? I, mean, I love Jesus, but there's other things, other things that are important to me. What we do is we take certain things and we put them on the same level as Jesus. And we say these things are as valuable as Christ is. And that is incredibly offensive to God. This is the Jesus who talked about the kingdom of God. And he says, what the kingdom of God is like, like a guy who's he's going across a field and he comes across and he notices something and he sees a treasure and he goes and he sells everything he has. And he comes back, he purchases the field so he can get the treasure. Or a guy who finds a pearl that's the pearl of great price and he sells everything he has because he's got to have this pearl. He's never seen a pearl of this value before. He liquidates all of his assets. He completely cashes out on all the stuff he has because nothing is, is on the same scale as the value of the pearl, as the value of the treasure that lies in the field. God over self, people over things, eternity over time. Ultimately, Jesus is of infinite value, and there's nothing created that possibly could be put on the other side that's going to equal the value of Christ. And until we get that, Jesus is not Lord of all in our hearts and in our lives. And that is where he's going with the rich young ruler. The question for you is, is what is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you have elevated to be of value? It, it, it might be some stuff. It could be money. It could be you know, some treasured possession. You know, often it's funny. Some of the things that are the most precious to us are, quite frankly, you know, most people look at it and say they're junk, right? We, there's certain things that we just, we just elevate. And we're like, this is so precious, so special. So it was often because of memories and other things. But at the same time, it's all going to burn, Okay. It's all going to burn. It's going to decompose. It's going to get rusty. It's going to get stolen. Somebody's going to spill coffee on it. Somebody's going to buy it from you and put a cigarette on it. It's going to burn a hole in it. It's going to fall apart. Okay. It's that there's nothing in this world that we should ever elevate. But the question, what are the things? It might be relationships. Might be your plans. Who knows what it is? But what is the thing that you have elevated in your life? What are the things you've elevated in your life that have taken preeminence that, quite frankly, if you were to be honest, you'd say, Jesus is Lord of all, everything in my life. But, but this one thing, I kind of, that's my deal. The challenge for you this morning is to repent of that. Repent of that. Walk away from that. Repent of that and find the infinite worth of of Christ. Even as we sang, we boldly could come to the throne of God through the blood of Christ because of Christ, because of Jesus, because of the blood that has been shed for us, his righteousness he's provided for us. As we finish our service, one of the things we do is we have time to, to give. You can put your cross life, um, your, your info cards in the, in the baskets um, for our cross life regulars if you want to um, have an opportunity to give as God leads and bless, has blessed your family. But it's also an opportunity for us to respond to God. And we don't do a um, hyped up invitation. I'll be in the back room. Love to pray with you during this time of reflection or even after the service. Be an encouragement to you, talk to you, but whatever. But, but I want to ask you to don't leave this place without writing down, without meditating on, without chewing on that question of what is it that I need to repent of? What is the net? What is the stuff? What is the thing? What is the relationship? What is the sin? What is the whatever that I need to let go of because Christ is of infinite value? Let's pray. Well, Father, as we transition to this time of reflection and of, of worship, Lord, you have invited us to repent. You've right, invited us to come clean. You've invited us to be restored, that Jesus would be put back in the center of our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we would respond that way. Thank you for the ways that you have 
blessed us. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to give back as you have given to us. But Father, I pray the first and foremost, God, that we would give our hearts and our lives newly, freshly surrendered. You know, what, what other place in the world can we give that which is of no worth to gain that which is of infinite worth? That'd be Christ. The hope of glory. God, we count everything else in our lives to be rubbish in comparison to the surpassing riches and glories of Christ Jesus, His righteousness. His name we pray and we respond and we give, we reflect, we worship.